This is the second Sunday of Advent. We are looking at the coming of the Christ and the rubric of light. Light has shone in darkness and we are looking at the marvelous light. Our scripture reading is found in Isaiah 45. Please stand or remain standing as we read the word of the Lord. Just a little bit of context for this passage before we begin because it might sound a little strange to your ears. This is oracle. Our religion is a religion of oracle. God speaks and we hear his voice. In this particular passage, God is speaking directly through the seer, the prophet Isaiah, to a king that is to be born and to come into power centuries later. This is prophetic word. God is speaking and he is speaking to Cyrus, who would later, centuries later, become the king and conqueror of Persia. Notice how theocentric the passage is. It's God speaking, but he's speaking about himself. In his uniqueness, in his singularity, in his unity, in his sovereignty, in his eternality, in his power, and in his salvific purpose for his people, Israel, and for all of humanity. I hope that's helpful as we read. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by my name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And our text, verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down from down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I the Lord have created it. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Nothing shapes our spiritual souls like an understanding of God in his sovereignty. That's where the Lord brings 
us to an understanding that He is the Lord, there is none beside Him, and all that is and all that occurs is His doing. God has purpose in all that He does. And this morning we focus on the place of darkness in the purpose of God. Not all is light. There's a lot of darkness in the creation that came into existence by God's own creative word. And the Bible tells us that the light has shone in darkness to bring us an understanding of God. We saw last week that that light shone in the face of Jesus Christ such that those that had seen Christ had seen God, the Father. Today it becomes a little more personal. We look at those dark places in our own lives and can we see in that darkness God? Now to demonstrate this at the geopolitical level and in historical reality, the Lord does a remarkable thing in this passage. This is prophetic prophecy. This prophecy was given by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. For seven centuries before Christ, God sovereignly superintended everything that took place in what we know as ancient world history. When the prophet Isaiah delivered these words of the Lord, speaking to a king that was not even yet born. In fact, when he was speaking these words, the great kings of Assyria, Nabopolassar and all the great kings of Assyria ruled the earth and had moved into and was conquering what we know today as the, as the Middle East. And coming down to Israel, and coming so far as to Jerusalem and yet not conquering. Assyria ruled, but in time, in about 130 years, God raised up another great kingdom that would come with Nebuchadnezzar and his generals would come and Babylon would conquer Assyria and then eventually conquer Israel and Judah and take Jerusalem captive. And God's people would go off into captivity in Babylon. You know the story well, don't you? And then in time, God would raise up yet another king that would conquer Babylon. And that king was Cyrus, who would then conquer the Medes. And we would have what was known in ancient history as the Medo-Persian Empire. And it was incidentally under Cyrus that God's people that had been in captivity in Babylon were restored and released to go back to Jerusalem and back to Judah and rebuild it. And it was Cyrus that God used to bring about that deliverance from captivity and that restoration of Israel. By the way, just to finish out the period of history, the Medo-Persian Empire was conquered by Alexander the Great and the Greeks which spread Hellenistic culture throughout the world and made a commonality to the world that had never been seen before under Hellenistic culture and prepared the way for the 
translation of the Bible into Greek where the Word of God was in the language of the whole world, which laid the foundation for the Greek New Testament. In the first century before Christ, Julius Caesar then conquered what was the Grecian Empire, the Hellenistic Empire, and it became the Roman Empire. And it was in the days of Augustus Caesar that Christ was born. The biblical story is not once upon a time. It is in the year Quirinius was governor of Syria. It is historical. It is stones and bones history. And God is saying here, I am sovereign over all this history. Now, I wish I had time to do this. A few years ago, we went through the book of Isaiah in our Sunday school class, and we were able to take some time. And one of our ladies in the class lamented that when we started Isaiah, she said, Ron, you'll never finish 66 books. I know how long you take to go through one verse. We'll never finish. And, and eventually we did. And, and I love the detail, the incredible detail of the book of Isaiah. But let me just sketch it for you real quickly. In these first few verses, what the Lord describes in predictive prophecy, and by the way, that's why we believe in the singularity of the authorship of Isaiah, because if you remove that and you say that Isaiah, the second half was written, a deutero-Isaiah was written in a later period of time, you destroy the whole notion of predictive prophecy. You've got the prophet writing history and not prophecy. And the whole point of the oracle of God is I know what's going to happen in the future because I'm the one who causes it to happen. And here's a summary of exactly what happened. Years later, three centuries later, when, when, when uh, Cyrus came to power, these are the things that he did. The Lord says, my anointed that is strong biblical language in, I, in the Psalm in 110, in 8, in Psalm 2, all through the Bible, the anointed of God is the, is the great phrase for the Davidic king, King David, the dynasty of David is what the Lord always refers to his anointed. And ultimately, of course, that's the son of David, Christ himself. But here the Lord applies that to this king to show that he has called him to a purpose just as divine and just as meaningful and just as powerful as that which he raised up King David for a thousand years BC, 300 years before this passage was given. He says, my right hand has grasped. In other words, God reaches over and takes the, his hand on the right hand of the king and he moves that hand to do what he wants done. God's absolute sovereign control over everyone. And in the passage over and over, he'll say, though you do not know me. I'm pretty assured that Cyrus never became a confessing Christian. Yet God used this powerful king to do everything he wanted to do to, to restore his people back to their land. But listen to the way it's summarized here. Whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to loosen the belts of kings. The, the, the signal of power in the Old Testament is the girding up of the loins and the tightening of the girdle of which the sword hung and in which the power came. And to loosen the girdle and to loosen the loins is to, is to cause to be weak and it's to cause to surrender, to take off the belt and to drop your arms in absolute surrender. And this is what God does for Cyrus. He gives him the power to take on the king so that they, they loosen their belts 
and they drop them in surrender to him to open doors before him. One of the magnificent stories of the conquest of Cyrus was how when he would go in, it seemed like he would be armed to the teeth for victory and things would just fall into place. It's almost like he didn't hardly have to fight. It happened especially when he conquered Babylon. He was prepared for a siege. And as it was, the doors just opened to him in historical fact when he went in to, in to conquer Babylon, to open doors before him that the gates be not closed. He says, I will go before you. The Lord is prevenient in everything he does. He goes before he lays the groundwork. He lays the foundation. Oh, if there's anybody here that's ever lived the Christian life for very long, you can look back. <laughs> you know, you look back and you can see the Lord laid the groundwork. He laid the foundation. He cleared it out. In fact, that's the language that's used here. He says, I will go before you and level the exalted places. It's the, it's the language of civil engineering. It's that of a road builder that grades off the high spots and builds up the low spots in order to make a highway for the king. It's the same language that's used by John. John the Baptist when he says, I'm a forerunner to go and to make the high places low and the low places high. If you've not seen the Lord do that in your life, I urge you to get closer to Him and know Him better and understand the providence He has in your life. Takes the high places, the unconquerable mountains and says to the mountain, be removed that you might be able to walk upon it, to let, take the low places, the swamps, the danks of life, the pitiful places, and he builds them up and he gives your feet a foundation to stand on. This is how God works in his ways. This is the way he grasps the right hand and moves things around in his sovereignty. And this is what he did literally for King Cyrus. He says, I will break in pieces the doors of bronze. By the way, there were brass doors to the city of Babylon back in the ancient day. In verse 5, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes of the secret places. The Lord says, I'm going to give you all this stuff. By the way, this was the immense wealth that, accru that accrued to Persia in this ancient day, starting with the conquest of King Cyrus and then his conquest of an alliance with the Medes under Darius and the Medes, the Medo-Persian Empire, the wealthiest empire the world's ever known. The Lord says, I'm going to give you all the wealth. Well, if I was a preacher, I'd stop right here and say, that's what God has done for us in Christ. The treasures of heaven have been laid before us in Jesus Christ. The Lord will reward abundantly in every way. But let's move on because here we begin to see the Lord assert himself in a very strong theocentric manner. He's saying, pay attention to me. Look at me. I am God Almighty. And look what I do. And look at the things that are listed there beginning in the end of verse 3. That you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. And then... He says, for the sake of, on behalf of, that's how God works. He works for the sake of his people. All of God's sovereignty in history, all of God's sovereignty over everything always abounds on behalf of Israel, Jacob. That is the church. 
That's the believers in God. That's the true Israel. God's working on our behalf. All things work together for good to those that love the Lord. He says, it's for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I have called you by name. I name you though you do not know me. If we had time, we could talk about the notion, the principle that God works even with unbelieving people to bring about his good. People who mean it for evil, God turns it to good. This is the sovereignty of God overall and the sovereignty of God in our lives. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. Here is a reverberating, echoing, thundering repetition of the first commandment. The thunderings from Sinai never cease. God has always insisted that every person understand who he is and what he has done and what he is capable of doing and how he has saved and how he has restored. God wants the word out of his goodness and his greatness. That's what the herald of good news, that's what the preacher, the messenger of good news that we read about in our call to worship is all about, is to tell the story of what God has done, of his magnificence. He says, I equip you though you do not know me. <laughs> the Lord gives gifts, talents, equipment to people that bring about his purposes even though they do not acknowledge him and they do not know him, that people may know from the rising of the sun that's the east and from the west that there is none beside me. God works all things sovereignly so that the nations may know. Notice the, the um, kind of the sequence. First, God's working and using Cyrus in order that he might work on behalf of his people, Israel, in order that the world, the population, the people may know. That's gospel preaching. That's taking the knowledge and the word of God in his doings to the nations and to the world, from the east, the rising of the sun to the west. And then our text, verse seven, and I think by now, you've got a pretty good idea of what it means. This is the Lord saying, I form light and I create darkness. Mm. That's not, that is not easy to understand. That is harder still to accept. God says, I create darkness. Darkness is not just the absence of light. It is a deliberate creation by God to bring about his purposes. And the darkness is created in order that the marvelous light might shine forth and bring all the more glory to God. Has God created any darkness in your life? I've heard preachers most of my life try to absolve God of his responsibility for that which befalls us that's not good. Oh, God had nothing to do with that sickness. 
God had nothing to do with that loss. God had nothing to do with this. God's not a God like that. He would never do something like that. Yes, He will. And yes, He does. He brings us through the valleys. He brings us through the darkness. He brings us through death and sorrow. And all of those things are not outside His control. His hand is on the hand of darkness. Every bad thing that happens to you in your life has been brought there by the sovereign God of the universe for a purpose that He might always bring light out of darkness. Everything that happens, when some of the worst things have happened in our lives, one of the things I've said to Paula is, I don't know how, I don't know when, but God's going to get some glory out of this. And as you walk with the Lord, you'll see it. I know this is not easy to understand. I know some of you don't believe this. But you've got to understand that our God controls it all. And He lets these things come. He causes them to come. He creates these darknesses in our life. And we can just start listing them. in order to bring about light. And He does. He creates light. It is in the dark hour that we fall on our face. In my distress, I cried to the Lord. If you never had any distress, would you ever cry to the Lord? Out of your despair, you call upon Him. In your sorrow and in your despondency, do you seek solace and comfort in Him and in His Word and in His Gospel and in His truth? It's the darkness. It's the darkness that helps us to know the light. When the light shines on us, when the light of understanding, when the light of the warmth and the presence of God come into our lives. They come into a dark place. The whole motif, the whole theme we're looking at this Advent season is different ways in which God has caused the light to shine in the darkness. And last week we had a whole litany of things that the darkness symbolizes in the creation. By the way, if you don't think I'm on the right beam, you need to skip a verse and read verse 9. We have to stop somewhere in the reading of the text, so we stopped at verse 8. But if you look at verse 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? <laughs> oh, until you understand that you are not but clay in the potter's hands. Will you really understand life? And it's always been that way. That Tuesday afternoon in creation after God had created the light and everything, when He moved all the way up there to that sixth day, all the Lord was was a potter. He reached down and got a lump of clay and said, 
This is Adam. And that's the way we've been in his hands ever since. Oh, we're rebellious. We don't believe we're in his hands. We don't want to be in his hands. We don't think we're in his hands. We try not to be. We try to go our own way. We try to make our own salvation and our own life and our own happiness and our own fulfillment. But that's not how God intends it. Here's how God intends it. Actually, I'm out of time. So uh, sometimes you're out of time before you're out of sermon. But, but let me just skip down to verse 22 of the same prophecy. Listen to the invitation that the Lord gives. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. You see the God-centeredness of this? It's not man-centered. It's not you-centered. This is not psychology. This is theology. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word which shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Check your knees. Check your tongue. Has your knee bowed before the sovereign God? Has your tongue swore Allegiance to Him, Thou art my God. Or has your knee been a little stiff? Has your tongue been a little silent? Or worse, yes, has your tongue been a little blasphemous and a little perverse? The Bible says that every knee shall bow. You bow now or you bow in eternity. Every tongue shall confess. You confess now or you confess it in eternity. There's one little phrase that just jumped out at me when I was studying this passage, and it's in that very last verse that we looked at, verse 8. It said, Oh, shower from heavens from above, let the clouds rain down righteousness. And I would love to talk about how this is a beautiful uh, metaphor for the crucifixion of Christ. The clouds, the raining down, the pouring down, and the righteousness that took place upon the cross of Jesus Christ. But there's one little phrase that just completely popped out when I said, and it's that next phrase, it says, let the earth open. That's the resurrection. That's the coming forth from the heart of the earth, the Lord himself on resurrection morning. He says, let the earth open that salvation and righteousness might bear fruit. That is the conversion of the species. That's the salvation of the human race. That's the salvation of all those that are coming to Christ. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Hmm, I love that. Let the earth open. Let salvation and righteousness bear fruit. 